Amen. Sometimes we cannot stand on our own because we fall into temptation. Sometimes we feel like we can't stand on our own because everything around us is falling apart. And always we're in need of the Lord. We're in need of Christ and what only he can provide. Because when everything in life is falling apart, what else do you have? Where else can we look other than to Christ and his merit and his love for us that led him to give his life for our sake? So let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him for his help as we will look to his word in just a moment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and agree with what we've just sung, that the Lord Jesus is our one defense and our righteousness, that he is the place where we stand when we have fallen into sin or when our lives are falling apart. And so we do pray, God, that you would continue to show your goodness and your faithfulness to us this morning by coming and being with us as we look to your word. We pray for your spirit to fill me as the one who will preach your word. And we pray for your spirit to fill all of us as we're going to sit under your word. Show us Jesus from the scripture, we pray. By your spirit, strengthen our faith in him. We pray that regardless of what's going on in our lives, that we would be strengthened in our inner man so that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ for us. So come now and do that great work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, human beings are complex. There's a lot of layers to us just in our personality, our personhood. With so many people, there is always a lot going on underneath the surface. Life, too, is complex. There's a lot to life. There are many different facets of life. I'm looking at a group of people that have all kinds of different things going on in your Sunday through Saturday. And life is not only complex, it can be and often is very hard. And so like we talk about pretty regularly here, to struggle is normal. To wrestle is also normal. And I know personally, I have, I've felt this way. I'm about to describe it for you in just a moment. I've felt this way at times, and I've had a number of people say to me over the last, let's just say, 10 years, you know, brother, life has really beaten me up, and life is often hard, and there are things that I wrestle with and things that I struggle with and things that I question. And I'm telling you right now that there have been points in my life where if I could have walked away from the faith, I would have done it. There have been times where if I could have punted the faith, I would have done it. But there's something about Jesus. There's something about Jesus that I can't walk away from. Now, sometimes when people say that, when they give that testimony, they see that as a bad thing. Our tendency is to think, man, like that says something really bad about me that I have been really struggling and wrecked to the point where I would leave the faith what I would want to say in that moment from the word of God is that, hey, rather than thinking about your struggle, how marvelous of a testimony is it that your God has kept you? How wonderful of a testimony is that? 
that you can say, I would have left if I could, but I can't leave Christ. Where does that come from if not from God? Jesus, friends, really is the heart of the matter. Jesus and who he is and what he did is the heart of the matter. C.S. Lewis is known for saying that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Many in the room may be familiar with his reasoning there. It's actually pretty accurate. We're going to look at the Bible today, and we're going to see that in our text. That There's really one of three takes that you could have on Jesus. First, he's lost his mind. That's option one. Second, he's from hell. Or third, he's the son of God. There really aren't any other choices than those. Many sitting in this room this morning are trusting Christ already. And it's good for us who are already trusting in Christ to contemplate him and to behold him from the scripture. And then there might be others in the room this morning who frankly aren't sure. You're not sure what you make of Christ. And it's good for you too to contemplate him this morning and to behold him from the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Mark chapter three. We're gonna be looking today at the bulk of the third chapter of Mark's gospel, verses seven through 35. So that'll be Mark chapter three, verse seven, on through the end of the chapter and verse 35. This is our fifth sermon already in Mark's gospel. We're already making some traction through this wonderful book of scripture. Before I give you the plan for the day, though, I would like to read God's word for us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and put your eyes on verse seven. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about it. The verses will be up here on the screen and you can follow along with me as I read. So listen now to the word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for us today. That's it. Pretty simple plan. Four points. I will give them to you one at a time. So point number one for everybody, and maybe in particular for the note takers in the room, I'll say it twice. Point number one is the messianic secret. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Number one, the messianic secret. We're going to be looking at verses seven through 12 for just a moment. The messianic secret simply being Jesus is the Messiah, right? And he's keeping his identity under wraps. And so we're going to think about that and why he's doing that together for just a few moments. You see in verse seven that he withdrew from the crowds and he withdrew even from the Jewish leaders in particular. That's the backdrop. In verse six, we see that the Pharisees are already starting to plot about how to destroy Christ. The crowds are gathering. There's a lot of fanfare. And so he is withdrawing from all of them. A great crowd has heard of what he's doing. He's healing people of diseases. He's casting out demons. He's preaching and teaching with authority. And so the people are intrigued. Demons, we see down in verse 11, recognize Christ. They know who he is. And so whenever the unclean spirits see him, they fall down. You know, the people whom they are oppressing, fall down and cry out, you're the son of God. We've already seen this happen once in Mark's gospel. We'll see it again. And then we see here that Jesus in verse 12 strictly orders the demons not to make him known. He orders the people who are being demonized, do not make me known as the son of God. We've thought about this briefly together, but I want to be very clear because for some people it's a little bit puzzling, especially in Mark's gospel, because he focuses on this piece, who is Jesus? But then his identity for eight chapters is really kept quite secret. This happens in Jewish context. So whenever Jesus is around his fellow Jews is especially when he says this, like, don't tell people who I am. We're going to get to chapter five in just a couple of weeks, and we'll see there that Jesus heals a man, a Gentile man, who was also being oppressed by demons. And then he tells that guy, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's chapter five and verse 19. So Christ doesn't make this sort of prohibition, don't tell anybody about me universally. He makes it in contexts where he is around his fellow Jews. Why? Why is he okay with this Gentile man telling other Gentiles about who he is? 
but he's not okay with Jews knowing who he is. It's because if it's revealed quite plainly amongst Jewish people that this man is the Messiah, there would be a lot of excessive fanfare. There's already a lot of it, but it would only be more so, more celebration, more hoopla around Jesus. And he knows this is the key. Christ realizes that his mission would be compromised with that kind of excessive fanfare and that kind of excessive love for him, that kind of excessive celebration and kind of triumphalistic joy and exuberance. Like the Messiah is here. He realizes that his mission would be compromised. You're thinking, okay, well, brother, how is that so? Reason with me for just a moment. A significant piece of the mission of Jesus was to what? A significant piece of the mission of Christ was to suffer and to die for his people's sake. So all that kind of fanfare and celebration of him as the Christ in a widespread fashion amongst Jewish people would have jeopardized the plan of God in that mission. Because he went to the cross despised by his fellow countrymen, right? There was only a small group of people who thought he was legitimate. The leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders in particular, hated him, wanted him dead because of the things he was saying and because they did not know who he was. It was the plan of God that Jesus would not be celebrated. It was the plan of God that there would not be fanfare around him. It was the plan of God that his servant would be of a humble nature. The righteous one who would rescue his people would not be this obviously awesome person in terms of his earthly presence in ministry. He would look like everybody else. Jesus came to suffer in our place for our sin. What a vital part of his mission that was. And that's why he's keeping his identity a secret. So as we read this and he's saying to these people, don't tell anybody who I am. We ought to look at that and say, thank you. Be appreciative and filled with gratitude that Christ came to accomplish his mission this way. That he knew why he was on earth. Like this whole notion, you'll hear sometimes, especially in liberal theological circles, that Jesus was not like super conscious of everything that he had come to do. That's ridiculous. Christ knew exactly what his mission was. He knew exactly why he was on earth and what he was to accomplish. He knew that he had come to suffer and die in the place of his people for their sin. The reason that he had to do that is because our sin is massive. The reason that God the Son had to take on flesh and suffer and die and not be celebrated but hated is because our sin is so great. We needed a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. Think about yourself for just a minute. I'm doing this with you. Think about your week. Don't even worry about your whole life. Just think about this week. Think about your heart. Think about the evil that resides in the dark corners of your heart. Think about desires that you've had this week. 
Think about passions that you have felt this week. Think about the evil that you're capable of, maybe in a general sense. Think about the evil that's crossed your mind this week. Now, like if we were, as you're thinking, kind of running these things through your mind, like every single one of us would be horrified if we thought that those images and those thoughts were going to be projected up on the screen this morning. Why is that? It's because every single one of us, we're all ordinary people in here. We are ordinary people, and we are all capable of extraordinary evil. Like, lest we get it confused and think we're pretty good. If we're honest about ourselves for even 30 seconds, like we were just a moment ago, we realize the weight of our own corruption. It is immense. So then, in thinking about that and thinking about what Christ came to do, as I am wrecked. So whenever we contemplate our depravity and we contemplate the wickedness that resides in our hearts and all of those things, the point of it is not to like pound people for no reason. The point of it is not to cause us to despair ultimately. It is to cause us to despair in ourselves and say, oh my gosh, I am lost. I'm ruined. But then it's to drive us to Christ to where we say, oh my gosh, how I need Christ. How I need Jesus. The fact that he took all of my sin, like everything I thought about this week times the rest of my life, he took all of my sin on himself. He became a curse for us. He was perfect. He had no sin. He deserved nothing but blessing and honor and glory and fame and renown. And he became a curse for us. He was our substitute living a perfect life in our place, but dying in our place. He died the death that you deserve, that I deserve. He died under the law. He paid the penalty that the law requires, death. And then his death as the perfect sacrifice is counted to us as our death. So our penalty that we owe the law, this really matters. It was a transaction that took place. This was no hypothetical thing that Jesus did on the cross, right? The penalty that, that Justin Perdue owes the, the law, owes God because I've broken the law. Jesus died a death that he didn't deserve, that I deserve, and that death is counted to me. It is as though I have died to the law and now am free. The same is true for every person in this room who is trusting Christ. Your death has been died to the law in Jesus. It's counted to you and you're free. Jesus came to accomplish all of that. He knew he was coming to accomplish all of that. And so he sought to keep the fanfare and the celebration to a minimum so that he could accomplish that. That's the reason for the secrecy. That's point number one, the messianic secret. Point number two, we're going to move on and consider, I'm, just, I'm heading this, the 12, the 12. So point number one, the messianic secret. Point number two, the 12. And of course, we're thinking together about the 12 apostles. We'll think about their significance for just a few minutes. Put your eyes on verse 13. Two brief observations here. I'm going to read it. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came. Just a couple of sweet, brief observations. Jesus calls to himself 
those whom he desires. Sweet. Like this is not just random. It's not just like, oh, well, you know, those guys. No, like he calls to himself the people he desires. One, two, they come. Nothing's changed. Christ calls those to himself whom he desires. He prays for us, right? Those whom he calls to himself will come to him. And he prays that we would be with him where he is to see his glory that the father gave him before the foundation of the world. Just a sweet thought. Your trusting Jesus is no accident. Long before you decided for Christ, he decided for you. Let's put our eyes now on verse 14 and following. So in verses 14 and 15, we'll see that Jesus appoints 12 men whom he calls apostles. That literally just means sent ones, those who are sent, right? And then Mark goes on to name the 12 in verses 16, 17, 18, 19. But just a a question, like why 12? Why 12 apostles? How many tribes were there in Israel? 12. So what's the significance of all that? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. What we should see in the appointment of the 12 apostles is that Jesus is building a new Israel out of the old one. Christ is building a new Israel out of the old one. Israel was the people that God dealt with pretty much exclusively for millennia. And then out of Israel, he would build the church. And the church, we know, would expand to the ends of the earth, to the nations. It was always God's plan for it to be this way. And so Jesus is appointing these 12 apostles as he's going to build his church. We see in verse 14, he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that, why did he appoint 12? So that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. Let's not just blaze by that one. On the one hand, I think it's entirely appropriate for us to see the humanity of Christ in that verse. He's a truly human being. He appoints the 12 that they might be with him all the time. Christ in his humanity is just like you and me. He, as a human being, desires, and we can even say because he's truly human, he needs community. He needs fellowship. He desires those things. It's a sweet thought about the humanity of our Savior. But he also appoints the 12 so that they would be with him for the sake of their mission. They would be with him for a period of time on earth for the sake of their mission. Their mission is not small. These will be the men on whom the the church is founded. Think Ephesians 2.20, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Like This is no small calling. And Christ is putting these men around him for a season of time for the sake of their mission. I'm going to flip over to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Bruce, I didn't prep you for this. You can put it up there if you want. If you have a Bible, feel free to flip. I'm going to read some verses. You can just listen to the word of God because I think the point will be made plain. Christ put these men around himself for a season of time for the sake of their mission. Acts 4, 1 and following. And as they... 
the disciples, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The church is being built. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this or did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now this verse. Now when they, that's the leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus for the sake of the mission that Christ put these men around him. The time that the apostles spent with Jesus, coupled with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uniquely equipped them to be the founders of the church. I'll say that again. The time the apostles spent around Jesus, coupled with the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uniquely equipped these men to be the foundation of the church. So even as we're reading the Gospel of Mark, and we're seeing the stuff that Jesus is doing, something as routine and ordinary as calling disciples to himself and appointing 12, we should see the plan of God unfolding. The church is being built. Jesus, we see in verse 14, very end of it, he commissioned them to preach. In verse 15, he gave them authority to cast out demons. So the church would be built by preaching, the proclamation, hearing comes by, or faith, excuse me, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Forgive me for that, mix up. Signs, wonders, and miracles would accompany the preaching of the apostles, right? This was to validate their message. So when they, we see this all through the book of Acts, as the gospel's being preached in context where it had never gone before, the apostles are performing many miracles. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're even raising some people from the dead, right? And it's to validate their message. It's to demonstrate that the kingdom of God has arrived. And in these exorcisms, it's right to call them that, we learn the real nature of the battle being fought. Think about Ephesians 6. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness was the same then as it is now. Christ would build his church and it would start with the appointment of these 12 men. Which brings us now to point number three. Point number three is responses to Jesus. Responses to Jesus. So we had the messianic secret, number one. Number two, 
Uh, we had the 12, number three, responses to Jesus. So Mark has been helping us see who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He's the divine son of man. That's the good response. The good response is he is who he says he is. But not everybody's seeing that. Not everybody is saying he's the son of God. There are two other responses that Mark outlines for us in the text. Put your eyes on verse 20. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat tons of people. And then when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus. Like, go get your boy, right? Like they go out to get him because they were saying he has, he's lost his mind. He's out of his mind. That's what his own family is saying about him. So that's one other response. Some are saying he's the son of God, not many. Then some are saying he really, he's lost it. Just a brief word here on the family of Christ, like his blood family. So this would include Mary, who gave birth to him, and then his siblings. Their experience is, is complex, to say the least. We know that later on, I mean, we know that one of Christ's brothers, half-brothers, would be a pillar in the Jerusalem church, James. Mary, in particular, is, is quite interesting to try to think through her experience in all of this. In being told by an angel that she would give birth to this son, what she should name him, and that he would save his people and all these kinds of things. There's the Magnificat that Mary says or sings in Luke chapter 1, right? So we know that Mary understood some stuff. She knew a lot about what was going on. But it's also clear that she didn't understand everything. Exhibit A, this passage, right, where she's going to come later and seek Christ and he's going to respond in a unique way. Think about the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where she asks him to turn water into wine. And he's a little bit like, hey, my time hasn't come yet. Like, why are you asking me that? So in other words, what I'm saying is the song Mary Did You Know is entirely legitimate, right, for anybody out there that is really worried about that. Well, of course, Mary knew. It's like, well, yeah, she knew some stuff, but she didn't know everything. The family of Christ had a very complex experience. But then the Pharisaic scribes from Jerusalem show up in verse 22. Put your eyes there. The scribes come down from Jerusalem and they are saying, here's the other reaction to Christ. They are saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. In other words, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. And it is by the prince of demons that he casts other demons out. Jesus responds to their charge. He responds to their argument in verses 23 through 27 in particular. He's going to respond to them in parables. Their criticism, their accusation of him is logically incoherent. And he's going to explain why. You're saying that I'm casting demons out by this power of Satan. That makes no sense. Let me explain it to you. Verse 23, called them to him, said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? It's a rhetorical question. Then he says, verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, if a kingdom is at war with itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house, verse 25, is divided against itself, it will come to an end, it will fall. So how does this make any sense? that I would be doing these things by the power of Satan and destroying his own kingdom and destroying his own household. 
if Satan has risen up, verse 26, against himself and is divided, his end is near. He's done. Makes no sense. Here's the reality, verse 27. He's going to start painting the picture of what's really going on. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So rather than Satan's kingdom being divided, rather than Jesus being an agent of the devil, he says, now here's what's really going on. I have come to bind the strong man. I have come to bind the strong man, the devil. I have come to conquer him so that his house may then be plundered. Plundered of what? Human capital. I have come to bind the strong man, the devil, so that the children of God may go free. It's verse 27. How would he do this? How would Christ do this? We've already thought about his death, his atoning sacrifice. He would also do this through living the perfect life that God requires. He would do this triumphantly through his resurrection, where he would conquer the grave. And we're told in scripture that Satan has the power of the grave, right? So Jesus conquers the grave. He conquers sin. He conquers hell. He conquers the devil when he gets up from the dead on a Sunday morning. So Satan, like biblically speaking, friends, I mean, Satan, yes, he's powerful. He roams about and he has been bound by Christ. The death blow has been dealt. We could talk if you want to ask me questions about that, even at the door, we could talk about this, how we don't see Satan fully defeated yet, but the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. It's because of Christ and what he's accomplished. And then finally, Satan will be ultimately destroyed at the end of history. Jesus, we can see in a verse like Mark 3, 27, is our great champion. He is the victorious one. He has been victorious over all of our enemies. Praise be to his name. And so just a brief thought about like the Bible on the whole in light of this, Christ being the great champion of God's people who conquers the great enemy of God's people, namely Satan. Read your Bible, read your Old Testament with that in view. So when you read about a guy like Samson, enjoy the story. It's pretty epic. I mean, movies could be made. Maybe they have been in Christian circles or something. Samson's life is pretty wild. We know how it ends. Many in the room will that he you know, falls and his eyes are gouged out. He's lost his strength. And then at the end of his life, he's in the palace. He's in the court. Many, many enemies of the people of God, the Philistines are gathered. And the Lord gives him again supernatural strength to basically bring the house down on top of everyone. When we see a figure like Samson, we should be thinking about Jesus and what he would come to do. When we see a figure like David, David and Goliath is a great example of this. Sometimes you hear David and Goliath read and people start talking about it and they tell you to go out there and start slaying the giants in your life, you know, just carry around your figurative sling and, and just start killing the giants by faith, right? Well, I, I think that's irresponsible in terms of like a right 
preaching of the word of God. The first thing that's going on in David and Goliath is that this shepherd boy who nobody cares about, who's basically just there bringing sandwiches to his older brothers on the front lines, shows up. The king of God's people, the impressive one, Saul, who you know has all this great armor and all this fanfare about him is scared to death. He doesn't want to go fight. He will not fight Goliath, the champion of the enemy of God's people. And David's like, well, he's defiling the armies of the living God. I'll go fight him. So then he goes out with a sling and some rocks, hits a giant man in the head, and then goes and cuts his head off. For us to read that story and then come away with, here's seven things that we can do to slay giants in our lives is insane. It's insane. What we see there is the greater David's going to come and cut the head off of the devil, man. That's what's going to happen. God's people are going to be set free by their champion who doesn't look impressive, who nobody gave a rip about. That's the story of the Bible. So we can like, get the popcorn out and watch the movie of David and Goliath with awe, knowing that it's ultimately about Christ. So I bring myself back in. Jesus is our champion. He came to set us free. He came to bind the strong man, the devil, so that we might be with God forever. We sang a song last week. O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's a verse of that song that goes this way. O come, thou rod of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Only Christ could do that. And he came and did it. He's doing it even here in Mark chapter 3. But now we move on to verses 28 through 30. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about the unpardonable sin. Because I would feel irresponsible to not address this. Because this is something that perplexes many. What do we make of the unpardonable sin? Let's hope we can make some sense of it together. Let me read these verses. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And he's grounding this in the fact that the Pharisaic scribes, the leaders of the covenant community of Israel, are saying he has an unclean spirit. The Pharisaic scribes are saying Jesus is from hell. And that's the context in which he makes this pronouncement. To blaspheme against the spirit of God like that is a sin of which one will not be forgiven. Now, that verse 30 is a partial explanation. It's not a full orb explanation. It's helpful for us to think about other things the Bible says in this regard. We made our way through 1 John not that long ago as a church. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, we read about the sin that leads to death about which we shouldn't even pray. John says, now there's a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying we should pray for those people. Okay, so that would be same thing. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. The sin that won't be pardoned is to attribute in a very definitive manner the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. So think with me for just a moment about the work of the Holy Spirit 
especially as it pertains to Jesus and the testimony about him. We're told in scripture that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're told that Jesus lived a perfect life as a man in perfect reliance upon the Spirit. We're told that Jesus performed miracles, yes, as God the Son, but also as a man in the power of the Spirit. We're told that Jesus was raised from the dead by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired men to write Scripture. And those scriptures bear witness about Christ. The Spirit himself testifies about the Lord Jesus. We were told that in 1 John. The Spirit gifts men to preach the good news about Jesus. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built by the Holy Spirit. The elect come to faith in Jesus by the Spirit. The saints are conformed to the image of Jesus by the Spirit. The saints are kept in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. The saints will be resurrected to see Jesus and be like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. I could go on and on and on and on about how the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Christ and the testimony about Christ are inextricably linked. So the sin that will not be pardoned is to look at all of that stuff that I just described and pronounce The Holy Spirit, all of this work of the Holy Spirit is evil and Jesus is of the devil. Now notice something. This unpardonable sin shows up in the context of what we would call the covenant community. It shows up in the context of the covenant community. In this context, you have the leaders of the house of Israel, the covenant community of God making this pronouncement. They were certainly men who had participated in the life of the covenant community. They were leaders in the covenant community. They had tasted and seen of the word of God. In 1 John chapter 5, we thought about the fact that John is referencing a sin that leads to death. He's talking about people who had left the church, right? He's talking about people that had tasted and seen, who had experienced all this and said, nah, this is from hell. We're out of here. Think about Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight. It's that language, right? When someone has participated in the life of the body, externally participated in the life of the church, who has experienced the means of grace externally, like sat under preaching, I've come to the table, I've done these things, I've experienced the fellowship of the saints and song and prayer and all of these things. I've tasted of the goodness of God's word And in that sense, I've shared in the Holy Spirit and I look at it all and I say, this is from hell. This sin is unique. This is not a church discipline matter. So when we do church discipline, it's over what we refer to as unrepentant sin. The person is still professing faith in Christ, but is living completely contrary to that profession. That's what church discipline exists for. This situation where somebody says, yeah, I've tasted it, I've seen it, I've experienced it, and Jesus is from hell, we treat that like a death because that's what it is. We simply remove that person from the church role. It's as though they have died. It is deadly serious, and it is obvious when it happens. I I think that I've seen this happen legitimately one time, and it was terrifying. It's not one of these things where you say, 
oh, I wonder if I've committed the unpardonable sin. Generally speaking, if you're thinking that, you haven't committed it. Generally speaking, okay? But it's not something that's going to be secret. It's going to be very clear. So those are just a few words about this sin that Jesus is talking about, of which no one will be forgiven. It's this pronouncement that the work of the Spirit is the work of Satan. It's done within the covenant community of God, where people have tasted and seen of the word and the goodness of God and then come to that conclusion. I hope that's helpful to you. Point number four will be brief, and it is our conclusion for the day. The heading for point number four is the family of God. The family of God. Let's put our eyes on verse 31. We see here, again, the family of Christ comes back into the picture. Christ's mother, Mary, and his brothers, we would assume that would mean his siblings in general, came standing outside, and they send to him and call him. He's in the midst of preaching, teaching, doing his thing in a crowd of people, and they're calling for him. The crowd, in verse 32, lets Jesus know. They say, hey, your family's out there. They need you. And then Jesus responds in a very interesting way in verses 33 and following. He answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? And in verse 34, he looks around at the crowd and he says that many who are sitting there are actually his family. Looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is simply pointing to the fact that the relationships that we have in the family of God are the deepest kind. That's how we should understand this this episode. The relationships that we have in the family of God are of the deepest kind. He's not dishonoring his mother. We should not, Jesus never sinned, right? So he's not dishonoring his mother or encouraging others to do so. He is not neglecting his family, which would also be sin. 1 Timothy 5, if you neglect your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Christ is not doing that or encouraging others to do so. He is saying this, in me, you have been adopted into a new family called the family of God. Whoever does the will of God is part of the family of God. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. All right, so basic question, friends. At the most fundamental level, what is the will of God? Like if this is how we become part of God's family, at the most basic level, what is the will of God? Let's try to answer it with some Bible. Okay, John 3.16, most famous verse in all of Scripture probably is helpful here. What does that verse say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, we hear a number of things from the Lord Jesus. He says to his audience, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is deep stuff, like the will of God. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, the first 
and the greatest and the final application of Scripture is always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many other applications. They're all good. This is the fundamental one. This is the first one. This is the greatest one. This is the last one. Believe. Look upon the Son of God and believe. So when Christ will say that whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister, at the most basic level, he's talking about that. Whoever looks about, think about the context of Mark 3. Some people are saying he's a lunatic. Other people are saying he's from hell. But then there are some who look upon him and believe. And that's indicative of the fact that those people have been brought into the family of God. So if you sit here this morning trusting Christ, doesn't matter if your week was bad or good. If you're trusting Christ, it means that you have been adopted into God's family. Now let's talk straight for a minute. Like being a part of the family of God and being in Christ Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. And at the same time, it does not take pain away. People hurt. Things are hard. Like we have an eternal hope to which we cling in Christ. And our days can still be filled with tears. So on our best day or our worst day, this is the final word that all those who look upon the Son and believe should have eternal life. This is the will of God. And Jesus says, personally, I will raise those up on the last day. That's wonderful news. That's the greatest news in the world. That when everything around me is falling apart, when my mind and my heart, I can't figure anything out or make up from down. The fact that Christ has me and will raise me up on the last day. I can pillow my head there and go to sleep and rest in him. So let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him to continue to minister to us as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we pray that you would continue to minister to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that everybody in this room hearing the sound of my voice would be among the number that look upon Jesus and believe in him as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. We pray that you would continue to use the ordinary things that you give us, like preaching and the Lord's table and singing and prayers and a service like this. We pray that you would keep using those things to sustain our faith, to strengthen our faith. We pray that you would keep working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. And we rejoice and take heart because we know that you're faithful to do that. Continue doing that good work in us, we pray, even as we come to the table this morning. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.